Um, well, I've got a blue slip question. I haven't had one in a little while. Um, but uh, just a reminder that if you have questions about uh, the talk, then you can ask them by filling in uh, a blue slip and putting it in the, the box at the back. Uh, the question was to do with the talk last week. And uh, it says that uh, I mentioned last week that the day of the Lord uh, that we talk about it is still to come in one sense. Uh, but in one sense, it's already started when Jesus uh, died and rose. It's, it's associated with Jesus' uh, death uh, and resurrection as the end sort of creeped in early before the, the end of time. So in Jesus' death, uh, we see some things that are associated with the end. And the question was, uh, since the day is, you said the day of the Lord started already in some way at the cross, is it too far to make a link between the darkness and the earthquake in Joel with the events that happen at the cross? So what it's referring to there is in, in Joel chapter uh, 3, uh, you have in verse 15, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. So, of course, at the events surrounding Jesus' death, we see that there's darkness uh, over the land, and we also see that there's an earthquake uh, that takes place that Jesus uh, dies on the cross. Is it too far to say that those uh, are, are referring to those events? My answer would be no, I don't think it's too far uh, to think that those uh, events are, uh, are in some way fulfilling uh, the, what's, what's talking about in Joel. There is still a fulfilment to come. There is a day when uh, the world will be shaken in a way that it, uh, it will uh, come apart, if you like. It will uh, begin the, the new heavens and the new earth. But Jesus' death on the cross was a little taste of the end. So we'd expect to see things that are, are linked with the end. So, yeah, the, the darkness, the earthquake, they, they are there deliberately. God did them deliberately at the cross to show us that this is the beginning of the end, if you like. These are the, the last days that we're living in. We're living in uh, the day of the Lord, if you like, and are waiting for that final fulfillment when Jesus returns. So hope that uh, answers the question uh, to whoever asked it. If you do have any follow-up questions, do write it on a blue slip uh, and stick it in the box at the back, and I'll, I'll have a go at answering it uh, next week. To our passage this week. Do you ever get confused by the Bible? There are parts of it, aren't there, that are quite tricky to understand. And I think there are a few reasons that we find it difficult to understand, especially when we're dealing with things uh, in the Old Testament. One is that the Bible was not written to us, but for us. So the book of Joel is not addressed to us as Christians, but was written to the nation of Judah at some point in their history. As I, I said right in the first week, we don't know exactly when. So the imagery that God uses to speak to these people is imagery that they understand. Uh, it was addressed to them. And the problem that we have is that we don't always share that imagery. So, you know, there are certain places, there are certain events, there are certain names that you could use that don't really mean much to us. I discovered this when I lived in France. Uh, I quite enjoy quizzes and, you know, watching TV quizzes and things like that. And they've got all the equivalents in France... But they asked questions about things that I had no clue about. Places, events, celebrities that are celebrities in France, but have never, ever become celebrities anywhere else other than perhaps Belgium. Um, so I was pretty useless at those quizzes because I didn't have that shared culture with them. And it's even worse when you go further afield, isn't it? You can get quite confused. So in China, red is lucky. So brides uh, marry in red. Whereas white is the colour of death. 
So the idea of getting married in white seems very, very strange to them. And we have similar problems when we look at passages in the Bible. And another reason we find the Bible tricky is that it uses lots of images and phrases, all meaning the same thing. It uses different ways of talking about the same thing. We all do this without realising. So where do we live? Well, we live in Britain. We live in the United Kingdom. Old Blighty, the UK. The United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Albion, Britannia. Land of the Rose. I found that this week. I quite like that. As long as it's the white rose, that's fine. (laughs) But they're all different ways of talking about the same thing, aren't they? Uh, All different ways of talking about the same place. There could be different emphases when you use different things, but the same place, the same reality lies behind them. So today we're going to talk about Zion, or Mount Zion. Now Mount Zion is a real place in Jerusalem, one of the hills that Jerusalem was built on. But in the Bible, as the story goes through, it begins to take on different ideas. It almost becomes a takes on a sort of mythological quality, as long as you understand that mythological doesn't mean not true. It becomes a glorious, perfect, future version of Jerusalem. And there are several ways of talking about that same reality in the Bible that will help us as we look at our passage this morning. Other ways that it talks about this same reality, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, the holy city Jerusalem, the city of the living God, the city that is to come, the heavenly country, the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. All of those in the Bible are ways of talking about this same idea. There are different emphases, there are different parts to it, but really they're referring to the same reality. I put a couple of verses on the back uh, of your notice sheet that use these uh, phrases interchangeably, just to show you that we use them alongside each other, referring to the same thing. All of them are different ways of talking about that same reality, that glorious future, that glorious place that God has prepared for his people. So as we read Zion this morning, that's what's to be in our minds. This is the other side of the story, if you like, from what we've been hearing the last couple of weeks. We've been seeing all that future judgment for God's enemies, but now this is the future for God's people. And what we find is five amazing truths about the future, five glorious things. Now there are five of them, so we're going to go at a fair pace uh, this morning. But the first thing that we see is that our God will be there with us. Have a look again at verse 17. And so you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. And Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. This is the first and most wonderful uh, and fundamental truth that we see this morning. God will dwell with his people. If Zion is the abode of his people, then the amazing truth is that God will be there too. There will be some wonderful things we hear about this glorious future as we go on. There's some things you read out there in the book of Revelation as well. But this is by far the most glorious. We will spend eternity with God. Yes, there'll be no tears. Yes, there'll be no pain or sadness. But they pale into insignificance compared with the fact that God dwells in Zion. If the thought of eternity with God doesn't excite you, 
then can I tentatively suggest that you don't know God? Or at least you don't know him very well. The prize is not paradise. The prize is God himself. He is what we're looking forward to, spending eternity with him in paradise. How will this be, though? How can God dwell with his people? Throughout the Bible, we're faced with the fact that God cannot dwell with sinful people without destroying them. If you like, we're a bit like lighter fluid to the fire of God's anger. Have you ever sprayed lighter fluid on a fire? Just watch it flare up. Our sin causes his anger to flare up like a solar flare to consumers. But here something has changed, hasn't it? You see the second half of verse 17? And Jerusalem shall be holy. Now it doesn't there mean the stones and the streets in Jerusalem will be holy. It means the people. The people will be holy. The people of God in that last day will be holy. There'll be no sin to flare up God's anger. God will safely dwell with his people. God will be there. We will be there. But sin will not be there. We'll not just be declared righteous by God. But we will be righteous in that last day. Sinless. And nobody will sneak in through the back door. Do you see that? And strangers shall never again pass through it. There'll be no unexpected, unwelcome visitors to bring sin back to this place. There'll be no snake or serpent to try and trick us again and take us back to square one. No attackers or conquerors to remove us from our home. There'll be no sin, but there'll also be no chance of sin ever returning. Now, I don't know about you, but I find that so encouraging. The battle against sin can be exhausting, can't it? The battle against sin can be dispiriting. And sin itself stops us from seeing God clearly, doesn't it? But one day sin will be over. One day sin will be no more. We'll have rest from the battle. We'll have final victory over sin through our Lord Jesus. And I hope you find that an encouragement. I hope that spurs you on to keep going in the fight against sin. The night is nearly over, as it says in Romans. The day is almost here. So let us put aside deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. So let's keep fighting and not give up. Sin will be gone and God will be with us for eternity. So that's the first thing that we see. Our God will be there with us. But the second truth that we find about this future that God has prepared for us is that our needs will be abundantly satisfied. Have a look at verse 18. And in that day, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Remember the imagery in the opening chapters, if you were here for the locust invasion? The way they would absolutely desolate everything. Well here is the exact opposite image. Whereas the image before was total desolation. The image here is total satisfaction. Abundance. Plenty. Whereas the image before was terrifying judgment and curse. Here is favour and blessing from God. The mountains will drip with wine. 
Do you remember the drunks from the early chapters who were wailing in the streets because there was no wine? Well, no more. Wine will be plentiful, but not for the drunkards, if you like. Not as a picture of drunkenness and excess, but as a picture of rejoicing and feasting. Uh, Do you know the wedding of Cana, where the Lord Jesus turned water into wine? The problem there was that at this great banquet, they'd run out of wine. That would be disgraceful. Well, that will never happen here. At the feast, there will be no running out of wine. The feast will go on forever, as the very mountains drip wine. Isaiah prophesies the same thing. Again, I put it on the back of your notice sheets. Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for us all, all peoples, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. The picture here is a feast, a, a rejoicing that God has prepared for his people on Mount Zion. So the hills will flow with wine. It's a wonderful picture. The, the, the hills will flow with milk as well. Uh, Remember, the promised land was supposed to be a place flowing with milk and honey. Well, there's no honey here, but the wine is sweet, isn't it? But the milk is flowing. The wine is sweet. And it's another image of fertility and abundance. Now, I'm no biologist. I did French at university, so I don't know much about biology. But I do know that milk requires cows. That's, that's, That's a pretty fundamental thing, I think. Cows require pasture. Pasture requires water. And water is not so abundant in the Middle East in general. All this talk of milk, well actually that takes time, doesn't it? It takes stability. Cows can die. Water can dry up. Cattle can be stolen. Actually to be flowing with milk requires stability, requires time. And here the milk is flowing from the hills. So abundant is it in the land. The next thing we see is that the stream beds will flow with water. Now, stream beds are the remains of where streams have previously been. Sometimes as you walk across an arid landscape, you can see evidence of where there's been streams at some point. When the land was more lush, but now it's sort of died away. Well, here the stream beds will flow with water. The desert will come alive again. There'll be fruitfulness, lushness, luxuriance. Yeah, I looked up in a thesaurus because I've run out of words. But there'll be abundance, plenty. Now, streams don't mean much to us uh, in Britain, I don't think, because we live in our green and pleasant land. We're spoiled, if you like, with the fertility of our land. The number of streams and rivers that we've got, you know, we've got one on our estate that's just there. But in the Middle East, it isn't so. This promise is more than just a bit of grass that he's promising to them. They would understand this as a promise of, of getting as good as it gets. Remember, this is a world without taps, without reservoirs. This is people who've just been through hell, figuratively speaking, as their land has been decimated by a plague of locusts. And here is promise of water, of crops, of lives restored. This is huge. It's promising rivers rather than ruin. Where will all this water come from? Look at verse end of verse 18. And a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. There'll be a fountain in the house of the Lord that will water the rivers and streams of the land. Now, this is really similar imagery to what you find in the book of Ezekiel, isn't it? So I think I've put Ezekiel uh, 47 verse 1 uh, there. 
Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east. And then you read further on in Ezekiel 47, And on the banks on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fruit every month, because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Revelation, that's to sound a little bit familiar. You can see from the way it's described, especially in the second quote, that this is nothing other than the river of life that is flowing from the temple, uh, giving life to the tree of life that grows on each side of the river and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. The only confusing thing is that in the book of Revelation, there is no temple, is there? You get the river, but you get no temple. So Revelation 21, 22... And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. So what's going on? How can it be both? Well, this is imagery. We're not supposed to understand it in a literalistic fashion. The question we've got to ask is, what is it there to show us? What it's showing us is that all this abundance, all this blessing, all this lavishness has a source. It's not coming by accident. The source is none other than God himself. And isn't this just what Israel and Judah forgot over and over and over again? God is the provider of their blessings. But they would always be tempted to focus on the gifts rather than the giver. But it's a reminder that God is the source of their blessing. Here the abundance flows from his house, from his temple. We're not to expect a literal river to flow from a literal temple. This is just a picture of the wonderfulness to come. A picture that, in the terms of the original readers, they would understand. These were things in the realm of their experience, weren't they? Wine, milk, streams, fountains, the temple. God paints the picture with images that they would understand. We do the same sometimes when we talk about this future with children talk about it like a big party because it's an image that they can understand now they might think it would be full of jelly and ice cream but that would just be a picture wouldn't it of the wonderfulness of what is to come but here is no different god is putting it in poetic terms that we can understand and certainly that the original hearers would understand so how might you put this today if this was sort of translated today Well, imagine the Pennines flowing with champagne and fine cheeses. Imagine the bleakness of Saddleworth Moor bursting to life with flowers and blossoms. Imagine all this flowing from an old chapel on the hill that you see so often, don't you, in the the valleys. Well, we get it here, don't we? This imagery isn't literal, it's poetic. But the reality it's describing is real. It will be that wonderful. The glorious future really is glorious. It's just being put in terms of things that we can understand. And you see that this waters, this, the, the, the water from the temple, it waters the valley of Shittim. Now just as we saw the valley of Jehoshaphat in the, uh, the chapter before, and the valley of decision, we saw their name was what was significant about them. So here too. The valley of Shittim literally means the valley of acacia trees. 
Now, acacia trees are about the only sort of trees that will grow in a wilderness or a desert. That's probably, when you read through uh, Exodus, why the tabernacles to be made from them. Uh, because that's what's available in the wilderness. It's probably like what we would think of in terms of cactus. You know, when you sort of think of a desert, you think of a sort of lone cactus. They would think of a lone acacia tree. So the Valley of Shittim, then, would be a place where acacia trees grow. A dust valley where the only thing that will grow is acacia trees. This is the valley that God waters from his temple. Bringing life to the driest of valleys, if you like. Bringing the desert into bloom. Like the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel. This is a wonderful picture of new life and abundance from God. So we'll be abundantly satisfied in the world that's to come. It's a glorious future. Our next point is that our situation will be secure. Have a look at verses 19 and 20. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inherited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. Here we see a contrast with our situation, with the land of our enemies, and of God's enemies. Theirs will be a wilderness, a desert. And it's Egypt and Edom. They're two sort of classic enemies of Israel. Egypt, famous for the fertile Nile, will be a wasteland. Edom, who opposed their entry to the land from day one, will be turned into a desolation. Now these two are picked because they're classic enemies of Israel and Judah. So probably for a previous generation for us, it would be, you know, the Germans and the Russians. But of course we're all friends now, so you can't can't do that. But a previous generation, that's what it would be. But they're also picked because of the violence that they'd done to God's people. The innocent blood that they'd shed. They had oppressed Israel, and now it's time for the tables to be overturned. But more of that thought in a moment. Their situation is desolate. Their land is barren and empty. Our situation, however, will be quite the opposite. In verse 20, we see that Judah shall be inhabited forever and Jerusalem to all generations. There's a permanency to our situation. Again, get beyond the imagery to the reality. This is talking about that same reality we were talking about before. Whereas before the land was on several occasions exiled... Whereas before Jerusalem was deported and became the haunt of jackals, no more. We will never again be moved. We'll no longer be strangers and aliens in this glorious future. We will be home and home forever. Just before uh, my children were playing with the the Lego in the the room, and uh, we've been reading Pilgrim's Progress with them. And we got right to the last chapter of Pilgrim's Progress, where they get to the celestial city, which he also calls Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. But Lewis had uh, made a model of celestial city. And he was so excited about it. And he came up to me uh, just before we started and said, Calvin's broken celestial city. It's broken. Well, friends, it won't be broken. It will never again be broken. It's secure. It's solid. It won't just go round in circles being broken and then be remade. I don't know if you've seen the latest Star Wars uh, trilogy, but people have complained about it basically just going round in another big circle where it started. You know, the goodies seem to win at the end of the original trilogy, 
And then the bodies are back in control. It just goes round in big circles. It leaves you with the thought, well, even at the end of this trilogy, if the goodies win, you just be thinking, well, next trilogy, it'll just be back to how it was before. This isn't the case here. It's secure. It's a cliche, isn't it, to say they lived happily ever after. But in this case, it really is. Never again to fall. Our situation will be secure. And in a world where everything changes, isn't, that, isn't this solidity for us? This is certainty for us? Though we may be buffeted in life now, we won't be then. We'll be secure in the Father's hand, secure in the Father's presence. Our situation will be secure. Fourthly, it's probably the hardest one to get our heads round. Our blood will be avenged. Have a look at verse uh, 21. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Vengeance is not something that we often talk about, is it? But the Bible talks about it fairly often. Perhaps the reason we don't talk about vengeance is that there's very little, actually, that we'd want avenging in our lives. Having said that, I read a few uh, days ago that up to 40% of women will experience some form of sexual violence against them by the time they're 40. Would we really just want that swept under the carpet? Or think about the young Christian girls taken from their family by Boko Haram in Nigeria and sold as a bride to the highest bidder. Would we really want that to be ignored? The various Christians and pastors detained around the world, beaten and abused. The attacks on churches in India, Pakistan and Egypt. Slaughtering Christians for no other crime than worshipping the true God. Should their families not want vengeance? Shouldn't there be some desire for justice? Now, of course, we are to forgive, but we do so in the knowledge that we are leaving it with God. We are not as Christians to take up things ourselves. We are not to let them embitter us or fill us with hatred. But we are to forgive and entrust judgment to our just God. That's what it says in Romans 12, Romans 12, 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. And in Revelation 6, it's what the saints are crying out for in heaven at the moment. Revelation 6, verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? I guess if we call to mind the the unpleasant things that have happened and are still happening, then perhaps we'd be crying out for justice too. The promise here is that God will bring it. Not in a vindictive way, not in an unjust way, quite the opposite. He will meet them with perfect justice and so avenge the blood of his servants. I think what we need to take from this is that when we find things hard, when things are difficult, we need to remember that God sees and God cares. Every snide comment that we overlook, God sees. Every lowering of our job prospect uh, that we just accept as Christians, God sees. Every injury done to us for the name of Christ, God sees. He sees, he knows, and he will avenge. And there's something right about that. I remember when uh, we were on holiday uh, a couple of years ago, there was a boy who was being mean to one of my children uh, at a swim park. So I actually physically pushed him out of the way in the queue. 
which when you think about it in a slippy place, that's not very good. And I went up and I shouted at the boy, and oh, you're probably not supposed to. But Cal, um, <clears throat> yeah, it was Calvin. Um, he was so proud, actually, sort of looking at, wow, my daddy actually cares when these things happen. How much more our Heavenly Father, when we're finding it tough, when we're being pushed aside? Our blood will be avenged. In the future, there will be justice. And that means that we can confidently put up with the injustices now. It means that we can leave them with God, because God will avenge. He cares. And then we have our last amazing truth. It may sound familiar. Our God will be there with us. Have a look at the second part of verse 21. For the Lord dwells in Zion. As we said before, God will dwell with his people. This is given as a reason for the last truth. God is with his people. God is for his people. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Because he dwells in Zion. And it's a truth now, isn't it? As God dwells with us by his Holy Spirit within us. But the Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit as a deposit of what is to come. A down payment on the full amount. On that day that it's talking about, we will fully and finally dwell with God and he with us. We'll enjoy blessing beyond our wildest dreams. We will be there permanently with him. He will never leave us or forsake us. We'll have closure on those injustices done to us and to our brothers and sisters throughout the world and throughout time. And God will be there with us. As if to hammer it home, he says it twice. The Lord dwells in Zion. And if we trust in the Lord of Zion, we become inhabitants of Zion. Glorious Zion. Glorious future. So let there be no confusion here. On the day of the Lord that Joel has spoken of throughout his book, there will only be two destinations. Only two outcomes. Zion the city of the living God, and outside Zion, Egypt, Edom, Babylon. In Zion, it will be glorious, plentiful, and wonderful. But outside Zion, it will be terrible. Punishment, judgment, and the harsh face of justice. This is the eternal future for the enemies of the Lord. And as we've seen in previous weeks, all of us are born outside of Zion. The entry to Zion is free, paid for by the blood of Jesus. But we must take it before the day comes. We must take citizenship before the deadline happens. We must put our trust in Jesus before it's too late. We must swap sides and bow the knee to him now, giving our lives to him, giving our sin to him to deal with, trusting in him for our future. Now, if that's still confusing to you, Come and speak to me or speak to Al afterwards. There's lots of confusers in the Bible. But don't let this truth be one of them. Because it actually could cost you your very future. Your very eternity. Well let's pray that we will be those who spend eternity in Zion. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the wonderful things that we see about the future that you have prepared for those who love you. Father, we pray that we would heed the warnings of what is to come. Father, if we haven't yet put our trust in you. And Father, if we have put our trust in you, pray that you'd encourage us this morning with those wonderful thoughts of what is to happen. 
Uh, Father, knowing that you've seen what has happened to us in our life and knowing that you've prepared such wonderful things for us in the future. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.